I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are basketball heavy today. I have a NBA comparison for Bill Belichick coming up later on. But before we get into that, we got to get into the Celts. Joining us now from the ringer, it is Michael Pina. Pina, so great to have you back on. Before we get into the Celtics and some other notable stuff going on in the NBA, I just got to give you credit, man, because I saw on Instagram, your son the other day has a Kevin Garnett old school Minnesota Timberwolves jersey on. Like, years from now, Pina, he is going to be thanking you for all these outfits. Like, you, you got the freshest gear for the kid. I love it. I got him the KG jersey. We got him a, a, a San Antonio Spurs beanie before Wembenyama was, was drafted. So, wow. two for two, really, honestly. He, he's going to owe me big time. Yeah, big execute. Well, very well executed, I should say. <laughs> very well executed. Unlike the Celtics last night. Look at that. What a great transition by, by me. So they're not going to go 82-0. and I thought that there was a chance they could do it after the way they started. But they lose to the Wolves in overtime. They put up a 98.2 offensive rating. They were 39.1% from the floor and 28.2% from deep. They didn't have their top 100 player, Derek White, and that game still went to overtime, right? That's like how difficult it is to beat this team is they had their worst shooting performance of the season and they didn't have one of their starting five, one of their best players. And so I should say it's just kind of unfortunate that they lost this game because they still had opportunities. So I want to rattle off a couple of things that sort of aggravated me in the game. The first one I would say is this, and this is a very positive Celtics podcast. I mean, how can you not be they're five and one, but just some small issues from the game last night. So the third quarter, the Celtics are outscored 27 to 19. They go six of 23 from the floor, two of 10 from deep. They posted a 76 offensive rating. The Wolves shot 62.5%. They finished just a 112.5 offensive rating because they hit just three of their nine threes. But here's the problem I had in that third quarter is it's like, okay, Brian, well, they're going to have bad quarters. Yeah, this happens to every NBA team. 
The problem is I just felt like that was the missed opportunity because Anthony Edwards picked up his fourth foul early on in that third quarter. He only played four minutes and 53 seconds. And I just felt like that was sort of a golden opportunity for the Celtics to take advantage. And I was shocked that the Wolves, where it felt like at times everything was running through Anthony Edwards. I was just shocked that the result of that third quarter was the Wolves come out on top 27 and 19. So I think that was a missed opportunity. The other thing I would say in terms of missed opportunities, specifically with Edwards, is in the fourth, Tatum goes at him right away, and he picks up his fifth foul with 10.49 left in the game. So he played eight minutes and 10 seconds in the fourth quarter. They got him out briefly at, like, I think it was about, like, four minutes left. They got him out briefly. And then he played the entire overtime. So by my math, he played 13 minutes and 10 seconds from the fourth quarter to overtime, and he only had that one foul, and the one foul was with 10.43 left in the fourth quarter. So I think, like, I get it. It's the regular season. You don't want to be mismatch hunting all the time. But when Tatum first did it, I'm like, oh, they're trying to get him out of the game. This is smart because if Anthony Edwards is out of the game, there's no way the Wolves are winning this thing. And they didn't try to go at him another time. And I know he's a good defender. I totally get all that. So you don't want to take away from what you're doing offensively. But you weren't playing well offensively. So I don't know why they didn't go at him more to try to pick up that foul because he is a guy, Pina, that is prone to fouling. Like, he will make those mistakes. Like, we see it with some guys. Like, Steph Curry has this issue at times. All the time in the playoffs, where he'll just pick up fouls. And I think Anthony Edwards sometimes can get too over-aggressive. So that was my... One, not concern in the game, but the one thing I'm like, just go at him. And when he's not on the court, please outscore the Wolves. Uh, yeah, Anthony Edwards was like tremendous. I mean, generally speaking. He was awesome, man. He was awesome. Yeah, it was a superstar performance. I thought he he just like pitched a perfect game. Like even early on, he was hitting shots, but he wasn't forcing anything. He got some secondary hockey assists, um, got off the ball really quick. Uh, I think to... What you're saying, like, there was that play where um, Tatum did isolate against Edwards late in the ball game, and Edwards like picked him clean and had a ju- like started a jump ball. Yeah, and it's just like he's a like Anthony Edwards. I know you you want him to get the sixth vowel, and that's understandable because he's the engine um, of their offense and their team, and he's the reason that they won the game. But he's also one of the best on ball defenders in the NBA. So you're like. That's kind of a tricky one there. Like, let's go at this guy who's like, looks like (laughs) Scottie Pippen right now. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean? So that's a little tricky. I thought that they, I thought that Boston's offense in general on the night just missed a lot of really good shots, Um, particularly the role players. I mean, role players like, you know, Drew Holiday's a role player. I guess technically he is, but he missed a lot of really good shots that he would normally make. Pretty much everyone on the team, like their misses were short for whatever reason throughout the night, I noticed. Um, Jalen obviously had uh, a potential game winner that hit front rim, step back three, created the space. It was wonderful. Uh, off- like Offensively, I thought that Jalen played one of his best games as a passer in a very long time. They were running that action in the third quarter with uh, uh, like a double drag with Drew and Tatum setting screens, and I thought he read the defense really well. Um, one of the times he hit Drew on the slip, Drew threw the lob to KP, cutting from the baseline for the dunk. Just like, you know, I just thought that their offense, and I I actually haven't been too high on their offense so far this season, despite uh, the results. Like, I would love to see, and granted, 
it's a lot of how defenses are guarding them. But I would like to see a little bit more ball movement with this team. And so actions like that and, and possessions like that were really nice to see where they were actually running stuff and forced to execute. And they were doing an okay job. Granted, there were a lot of turnovers, a lot of sloppy play. Al Horford's turnover out of that horn set um, with like 30 seconds to go when they were going for the two for one at the end of the game where he just kind of let it go uh, out of bounds baseline was tough to see. And Al Horford in general, I thought, um, looked a little his age last night. You could say if you're looking for something that's worrisome, that's the one thing that I would look at, even though generally my takeaway is like you're going up against the best defense in the NBA without Derek White um, on their home floor. And you executed pretty well offensively. Your defensive game plan was like primo. Like it was a very good defensive game plan. The Putting Drew on Cat, being able to sw- putting Tatum on Mike Conley, being able to switch that pick and roll, you totally neutralized it. Cat was basically a no-show on the night because he was frustrated when they finally, he started to get it going in the third quarter when Ant was out of the game, as you mentioned. And... um uh, just couldn't, I mean, he had two straight buckets on Drew, I think, in isolation and then tried to go third time. They challenged it. He got the fourth foul or the fifth foul, whatever it was, and had to go to take another seat on the bench. Um, but putting KP on Jaden McDaniels um, yeah. and letting him shoot, you know, J- I think Jaden McDaniels is wonderful. I was okay with that strategy in general. And, you know, you're, you're gambling on, uh, like, I think like defensively, your your game plan was sound. You know, the Minnesota Timberwolves didn't have a eye popping offensive rating or anything like that. You're just hoping that Anthony Edwards doesn't hit incredible shots, and you're hoping that Al Horford is able to maybe get a couple better contests down the stretch. When uh, when Ant really started to go off, he hit those two over Al, the pull up three and the pull up two. Um, so that was tough to see. But like overall, you know, I'm just encouraged by this Boston Celtics team. I mean, like their point differential through six games is like borderline historic, even though they just lost the the point differential through five games was historic. They just, it's still really, really, really great. Um, despite the loss last night. So, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, you would have loved to see ant foul out, <laughs> but can't have them all, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's a good point. And by the way, I totally regret I did a pod like this is before anything happened this offseason. I'd like, you know what? I wouldn't mind Carl Anthony Towns on the Celtics. I totally take back that pod. I wish we could erase it from history. I want no part of that guy. I'm buying nothing that guy is selling. I mean, did you see when he was complaining? He was complaining about a foul where he blatantly hit Tatum on the arm or in a jump shot. I'm like, dude, how can you even complain about this? So I want no part of that guy. I think he's a loser. I think if the Wolves trade him, they'd be Better off just building around Anthony Edwards and that team. But to your point about the defensive strategy, I give Joe a lot of credit for that. Because when you saw the alignment when they came out that way, I'm like, oh, this actually makes a lot of sense. Because we saw the Nets, they sort of did pick on Porzingis a little bit on that end of the court. And it's like, oh, let's hide him on a guy that's not going to do a lot with the ball. Let him shoot. Say, hey, if he's going to beat us, go ahead and beat us. So I like that strategy. And It's like, well, he thought about that. I give him a lot of credit for that, right? It made a lot of sense when Tatum's on Conley, to your point. With the late game stuff, as you mentioned, like Tatum, I thought they got a little bit too ISO heavy, like just trying to go at Anthony Edwards. And I get it, mano y mano. But that was a bad, I I thought the other bad turnover they had is when it's 98-98 and Tatum gets the ball, like basically at the nail 
and Jalen's staying at the slot. Tatum makes a like almost like a no-look pass. It's a read pass. Jalen's supposed to be in the corner. I thought that was more on Jalen than it was on Tatum. So I thought that was one where it's like you'd like to have that back. I didn't have an issue with the shot, as you mentioned. Good look at the end of the game for Jalen. My one big issue, though, is down the stretch of this game is one of the things we talked about why Porzingis made so much sense is like, oh, this is another weapon you have in late game situations because we've seen at times in the playoffs, the offense can get stale. In the fourth quarter in overtime, Porzingis played 10 minutes and 37 seconds. He didn't attempt a shot and he got just two free throws. The first three quarters of the game, he had 18 points. He got to the line eight times. So that would be my one critique of what they were doing in the fourth quarter and in overtime is involve Kristaps Porzingis in more stuff because I feel like what we've come to realize through the first six games of the season or so, even in the first half of this game, even though he didn't shoot the ball well, he got to the free throw line, he just opens up so much stuff. So I was kind of surprised that he wasn't involved in more action late in this game. I feel like that was the one thing, if I'm looking like as a bigger, broader point with what transpired at the end of the game, like the turnovers, yeah, you had some bad ones and Tatum got ripped and the whole pass to Jalen and all that. Yeah, that's stuff that, and Al just like losing the ball and then slipping. I thought he was going to get hurt. I mean, I don't know what it was about that court last night, and I'm not blaming the turnover on that, but guys were slipping all over the place. It happened to Tatum a couple of times. It happened to Anthony Edwards at one point as well. But my big point there is just, I'd like to see Porzingis involved more late in the game. And I feel like they went away from that. And I thought this is like sort of, hey, this is the whole reason he's here. We've seen how good, we've seen how impactful he can be. So I thought that was a missed opportunity. Yeah, you just have so many options for this team. So it's like, to I get what you're saying, and I don't necessarily disagree at all. But like the Celtics win the game if, you know, they went, like their spacing's great, right? And there were several possessions where like, for example, Drew Holiday would back down to kill Alexander Walker and just miss a bunny at the rim. And yeah. if he makes two of those instead of missing two of the easier ones, they win the basketball game, right? True. So yep. it's like, you don't. the process was still, I thought, really sound. I do like, in the third quarter, they went to it a lot, which is one of my favorite actions that we've seen develop, which is the wide pin down KP for Jalen Brown. Really difficult to guard, especially when the offense or the defense on the weak side is occupied because you've got spacers all over the court. So like Jalen... They ran it like three straight possessions. They got good stuff out of it every time. Jalen can fade behind the three-point line, get a good look. He can curl in, hit KP on the slip. It's an empty corner. Um, I really I love that action. So to your point, I would have loved to see them go to it even more, um, especially because the Wolves in this game <clears throat> were really not trying to switch um, a lot of uh, of ball screens on and off. Um, it's one of the reasons why it was really difficult actually to go at Anthony Edwards because uh, Jaden McDaniels it does not switch screens. He's like vintage Marcus Smart for Celtics fans who want to understand what that is. <laughs> like he just can't be screened. And I thought he did a really, really, he had a, a hell of a game defensively. Um, committed a couple fouls, which he tends to do, a couple of dumb fouls. But in general, I thought his job on Tatum was um, absolutely tremendous. Um, and he mucks some stuff up and forced some tough shots. But yeah, overall, like, again, I, I like the process <clears throat> from this team on both ends throughout the game. It was a winnable game against a really good team. Like I picked, this might be crazy. I picked the Wolves to be top three in the Western Conference in the regular season. I think this team is really, really good. Um, and 
uh, when Anthony Edwards is hitting shots like that and he's playing defense like that and he's moving the ball, seeing the floor, being patient with it out of the pick and roll, they're just so tough to stop. And they didn't even get like yeah. a, they got a bad cat game. Like cat doesn't play. I know you said he's a loser. He doesn't play this poorly every night. He's very good usually. So yeah, they um, got the kitten game. So sure. So, uh, you know, for it to even go to overtime, I thought was encouraging and, I'm, you know, everyone is really high on the, uh, we were talking about this before we started to record a little bit. Everyone's really high on the Philadelphia 76ers right now. They play the Sixers on Wednesday night. Um, I would like to see the Sixers. I'm I'm not saying the Sixers have been, you know, bad or anything like that. I would just like to see them play and beat a real NBA team. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. Like they dropped 150 on the Washington Wizards last night. Like I, I'm that, that matchup is going to be really interesting to me. Yeah. I can't wait for that. We'll get to that at the end, but yeah, the wizard situation, man. If you want to tank, you get Jordan Poole. That is like the perfect tanking player because you know he's going to take 30 shots a game and he's just going to be super inefficient doing it. It's crazy to watch that situation. I feel bad for Kuzma. I want Kuzma to be on a good team. You know what I mean? Like Kuzma's proven like when he's on a good team, he can play defense, he can score. So I feel bad for some of the guys on the team playing with Jordan Poole, who has said that his legacy is already cemented because he won a championship with the Warriors. So whatever the hell that means with Jordan Poole. But moving on from the Minnesota situation, it's a good point too. I, I agree with you. Like I really like a lot of the guys in that Minnesota team. And I think they're funky to play, man. Like they're tough to play. I mean, I know the Gobert trade got shit on, but he's still a good player. Like he's still a good defensive player. He's not the same guy that he was in his prime, but he's still solid. I like McDaniels to your point. I like Edwards. I think Conley's a good fit on that team. Obviously he's not the same guy that he once was. I think if they do make a move to trade Carl Anthony Towns, I'd be more in on that team than I am now. But I really like it. I think they're going to be. And look at it. They beat the Celtics and they beat the Nuggets. Like, I mean, those are two really great wins early on in the season. But more yep. broader things with this Celtics team. I wanted to mention this. So tell me if you're concerned or not concerned about this, because I completely bought into the preseason hype with Pritchard because I thought the first two years of his career, I think this guy was a good player. He has 22 points on the season. 15 came against the Pacers in that blowout, 155 to 104. So that's 68.1% of his total points, to be exact on that. He's 8 of 30 from the field, 26.7%. 3 of 18 from deep, 16.7%. Six of his made buckets came against the Pacers. So, and also two of his made threes against the Pacers. So that means he has two makes and one three-point make in the other five games. The last two games, 39 minutes, zero points. And he has three scoreless games on the season. So the reason I point this out is because I'm not like complete, like a lot of people have pointed out the bench scoring. Well, when you have the scoring that you're getting from your starters, that's fine. I don't mind that the bench isn't scoring. Like they're not going to be a high scoring bench. But I did think at least like in a road game like this on a Monday night against Minnesota, you would like to see a little bit of punch from a guy that you extended. And I'm not saying you paid a crazy amount of money on him, but I just think that you shouldn't have three scoreless games if you're Peyton Pritchard. And if you're playing 39 minutes at some point, and look, he did some other things. He had three offensive, I think he had, what, three offensive rebounds in this game. So he does have other things. Like, he's certainly active and all that. Like, I'm not saying it's for a lack of effort or anything along those lines. But I just think you got to get a little bit more out of Pritchard, especially the last two games. And look, they won the game against the Nets. But when you don't have Derek White, like, this should be a big opportunity for Pritchard. So his start to the season... I'm not saying I'm concerned, like eventually I think he's going to catch fire, but at some point, man, come on, we're six games into this thing. Start hitting something, man. He can't throw the ball in the ocean right now. Yeah, he looks, I mean, he he just looks like he's pressing a little bit. 
Um, yeah, I don't think that the you know coming out of the preseason, I thought this was going to be just kind of a hit the ground running year where he was going to be incredible as their seventh man and their backup point guard and or their third guard off the bench. <clears throat> he does lead them in assist rate, which you know through six games, take that for what you will. But yeah, he's just not hitting shots. He had that one um, corner three that he missed, and it was like a six point swing in the third quarter that kind of, uh, it would have been like a nine point lead went down to three. That was kind of a tough sequence there. Um, and he's just like, he's, you know, missing like basic reads in some instances. And there was one play where like, I'm not on the court. I can't see what he sees, but he had Jalen Brown. It looked like streaking, um, up the sideline and transition and just missed him. And Jalen like jumped up and like Jalen was just like, not happy about not getting that pass. Um, it probably would have been a transition dunk and actually would have eventually ended up happening was KP got an and one. So it all worked out, but that pass, it's just like, is he, cause that's a pass that I think he would be able to kind of zip ahead. And then he was doing, making plays like that in the preseason and just, over his career, you've seen him make plays like that all the time. So I think the shot will eventually fall. He'll, uh, you know, settle down a little bit. The team needs him, I think, throughout this regular season to play better. They haven't already just because of how explosive the starting five has been and the, the hot starts that this team has gotten out to. But, like, yeah, he's much better than he's played. He's not going to go scoreless. I mean, I'm kind of stunned by the the donuts to be honest with you in the box score with him because he is someone who can get it going and score in a multitude of ways um he's really frisky the pull, he has a like a dead eye pull up three point shooter spot up three point shooter um can get downhill a little bit so i'm not worried about it it's just it's it's surprising to be honest yeah and i'm with you too like you mentioned that play with jalen there is plays where I feel like sometimes, to your point, where he just needs to slow down. Like he, it seems like he just sometimes will just dribble into traffic, and it's just like I understand. I like the fact that he likes to push the pace. I think that's awesome. But sometimes he's just got to slow down. It feels like every time it's the, like he's shot out of a cannon, and you just want to be like Peyton, slow down a second here, okay? Just slow down. Most guys you wouldn't say that for. Like you want to make quick decisions, but it just feels like once he gets it, it's either. He's shooting it or it's like, I'm getting right to the basket. And sometimes he's just going to be careful with that because he gets into bad spots on the floor. All right. So Tatum, his ISO numbers went down last night, but I want to get to him in a second here because obviously his ISO numbers on the season are really good and not his best game Monday. He still ends up with 32, did have the six turnovers. As I said, one of those I put on Jalen, but anyway, he had been north. He had only been north of three turnovers in a game once. And that was the opener. Other than that, this is his first game since then where he's over three turnovers and he actually dropped to second last night in plus minus he drops behind Jokic because Jokic and the Nuggets just clobbered the Pelicans in the second half but Tatum now shooting 55.9 percent from the floor 42 percent from deep despite the two for eight in that game against the Timberwolves he did get outplayed by Edwards but it's going to happen every once in a while when you're going up against a great player but all the numbers are encouraging the post stuff is great he's overpowering defenders the two-point shooting is at a career best, and the ISO numbers I mentioned, 34 possessions, 44 points, 1.29 points per possession, 88th percentile. 
when last year he was at 0.93 points per possession, which that was in the 55th percentile. So I think part of that is just the fact that he's overpowering defenders more. So I did this thing the other day, Pina, where I was talking about Tatum and sort of where he ranks in the NBA. And Jokic is clearly the best player. Curry's probably still a better player than Tatum, especially the way that he started the season. And Embiid's off to this great start, although I do have concerns all the time about Embiid in the postseason. We saw it last year. But I do think if you're looking at the guy that has the least amount of flaws in his game, right, where everything is a plus with Jason Tatum, I do think there is an argument where he's sort of like, and I'm not saying he's this level of a defender, but he's almost like the new Kawhi Leonard where he doesn't really have any weaknesses in the game. So I think you could make an argument. He's not the best player. Like, I want to be abundantly clear about that. But he may be the most complete elite rebounder, elite shooter at this particular point in time, elite scorer, and elite defender. I mean, that's something that Tatum is obviously great on that side of the floor as well. Like, even if you look at... Jokic is a fine defender. He's not a great defender, although he's having a really good defensive season so far, getting his hands on everything. Curry is a fine defender. He's a good defender, I would say. I think he gets criticized a little bit too much, but he's not. No one's going to say, hey, he's an elite defender, right? I do think that maybe if you're talking about the most well-rounded, the most versatile, like I think you could make that type of argument for Tatum. And I do think that the evidence we've gotten through the first six games He's taken another leap. I don't think I'm crazy to say that. Doesn't it feel that way that he's taken another leap this season? Oh, yeah. I mean, he could win MVP. Like, he's totally in that conversation with Luka Doncic, Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, Steph Curry, Giannis Antetokounmpo, like, the best of the best, cream of the crop. Like, he's totally, he's up there, for sure. Um, and to your point, he's in the conversation for just best all-around player, best, you know, most ideal franchise building block, whatever you want to say, like really easy to throw him in any lineup around any type of player, um, any unit, big, small, whatever. He'll accentuate everybody else. He'll capitalize off of um, what everybody can do and can't do. So yeah, he's for sure having a tremendous season so far. Um, uh, One of the best players in basketball and you know five steals last night i thought he was really those weren't an accident at all to your point and the one thing like when i'm like i hold him to such a high standard watching him play even though he's not you know even really in his prime one could argue based on his age or anything like that but like he still misses passes that and I may be just being a little harsh, but he misses passes that I just like, I just feel like he should be making like wide open kickouts when guys are, for example, helping off the strong side corner and he just kind of burrows his shoulder into a crowd and it's probably going to end up being a turnover. Maybe he'll get bailed out with a whistle, but he has a little bit of a. I think he's a really good passer for his position. Don't get me wrong. But he has a little bit of a tunnel vision in a way that I feel like is uh, like once he kind of just is all the time automatically making all the right reads and the right plays, the offense will be totally unstoppable. And no, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and we saw the Warriors kind of take advantage of that, right? They knew that he wasn't going to make those passes. And that's where he had all those turnovers in the finals. And I get we're talking about two years ago, but I think the other thing that maybe he has to factor in now is, hey, when you're kicking out these passes now, you have all good shooters 
previously you didn't, right? So maybe he's like, do I really want to kick it out to Marcus Martin? And look, maybe he's not just, maybe he wasn't just making the reads at that point in his career. But I do think if you're looking at it from an organizational perspective, those reads should be easier for Tatum because of all the shooting they've now surrounded him with. No, and it's 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 kind of tricky because like his assist numbers are down in a lot of ways. If you're watching the games, like defenses aren't helping off the three point line. They're not helping off Derek White and Drew Holiday and Jalen Brown and Kristaps Porzingis. So he has driving lanes, and there was a sequence in this game, a stretch where he was just getting to the rim over and over again, like blowing by. It was like attacking Kyle Anderson, just getting downhill and finishing because I think it was during a stretch where Rudy Gobert was on the bench, Nas Reed was in the game, and Carl Towns was in foul trouble. So he was just feasting because he has so much space and room to operate with. Um, So like that's reading, but that's reading the game, right? That's making the right decision, Um, getting downhill, getting to the basket, drawing a foul, finishing at the rim. But like, I don't know, just, just like... It's not. It's like it's like two or three plays a game where he just doesn't see it, and like the truly, you know, he's he could already win MVP not seeing these one or two plays a game, passes a game or whatever, and that's fine. But like for him to get to that really untouchable level, I feel like those passes, those reads, him being a little more patient instead of just relying on the step back three when there's like 14 on the shot clock, maybe like when Carl Towns switches out on you, drag it out a little bit, get another screen, see what you can get from there. You know what I mean? Like, so um, I don't really have, I know I'm sounding like I'm complaining about him. I think he's one of the five, six best players alive. He's having an incredible start um, and could very well win most valuable player. He finished fourth in the the, the the voting last season. He's just, he's amazing, especially for his age. And like, so the isolation numbers are up, but that's just because of the space that he has now yeah. to operate with and how defenses are, are guarding him. The post-ups, I think, has been like a big talking point. That's something to watch throughout the season. So far, the volume actually hasn't, just according to Second, second Spectrum, the volume for his post-ups isn't like... Um, eye-popping yet. I think that that's something that they can definitely take advantage of, particularly when he's with those bench units um, and forcing double teams and getting off the ball a little bit quicker, making the right reads there. Um, he made one kick out to Jalen Brown in the fourth quarter, or maybe it was overtime, that was perfect, and Jalen just missed the wide-open three. So, like, they win the game if he hits that shot, probably. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Tatum's great. Um I mean, I don't really have anything else to say about him. He's an amazing all-around player. <laughs> yeah, and I like what he does now, almost in semi-transition if he gets a cross-match. He's just almost backing down the smaller defender down from the wing, which is something I've mentioned before. LeBron has done this for years. I love that he's taken advantage of that. All right, mm-hmm. so Drew had the rough shooting night on Monday. He was 4 of 16, and he was awesome on Saturday night in Brooklyn. Outstanding game where he had a near triple-double. And so I looked at it in terms of his numbers. He's shooting 34.5% on threes, 10 of 29. But I went to his first six games of last year, 14 of 40, 35%. So it's the same thing last year. So I'm not concerned about his shooting whatsoever. But what I did want to ask you about when it comes to Drew. So Derek White, who missed the last two games due to the birth of his child. So Derek White has now missed three total games as a member of the Celtics. All three were for the birth of his child. Other than that, unless he has a kid... He's not going to miss a basketball game. I should knock on wood when it comes to that. But 
Derek White so far this season. Celtics with White in the court, 99.6 defensive rating. That's in the 97th percentile via cleaning the glass. 8.6 points per 100 better. They have a 130.3 offensive rating with him on the court. That is in the 100th percentile via cleaning the glass. 17.3 points per 100 better, 93rd percentile. The Celtics with Derek White in the court are plus 30.7 per 100. 30.7, which is just ridiculous to say it. I know they've had some interesting games in there that they've blown teams out, but it's actually 25.9 points per 100 better, 95th percentile. He is shooting the shit out of the ball, 73.3% on twos and 57.9% on threes. Among qualifiers, only Jabari Smith is better than than Derek White so far this season. But, so I wanted to ask you this question. By the end of the year, because they make the big trade for Drew Holiday, which everybody loved. It was awesome. I love Drew Holiday. I love watching him and Derek White play defense together. Who do you think we will think is the better Celtic at season's end? (laughs) It's a difficult question. Uh, I mean, I think... Drew Holiday is a better player, for sure. Derek White is kind of just on this. I mean, he's a proven winner. He's really smart, two-way, all-defensive team, all that, for sure. Um, And he's shooting like the crap out of the ball to start the season in just a totally unsustainable way. I think that... um, yeah, it's a, I guess it's a tough one. I, I would say Drew's the better player, but it wouldn't shock me if this an, the answer ultimately was Derek White. That's how good he is. Um, one guy is, I think, four years older than another guy, too, so that's something to factor in. We could see a little bit of slippage with Drew this season. Um, and Derek White also has the the familiarity with pretty much everyone on the team, or a lot of guys on the team, particularly uh, Tatum... Al and Jalen going on a finals run with those guys. Uh, so that's kind of built in his confidence level, his chemistry, all that sort of stuff. I think Drew's still like the better player though. And Drew, someone who like going back to what Joe Mazzula said, I think earlier in the season or on JJ Reddick's podcast, was that before the season or whatever? Like we need curveballs. That was actually before uh, Drew was traded to the team. They did that interview but like one curveball and you saw it last night when they lost cuz he couldn't make bunnies but like Drew Holiday bully ball is such a weapon like yeah there's just like, that's not something that Derek White can really do um not too many guards can like he's just a walking mismatch if you put a small on him he's going to back you down and he's going to get a really good shot out of it so i think Drew's better Drew's defense um it's kind of crazy to say any guard is better at defense than Derek White, but Drew on ball, off ball, um, like the fact that they stuck Drew Holiday on Carl Anthony Towns, a seven footer, uh, and he did an amazing job. He's just stronger for matchups like that. So I like, I like Drew. I'm going to go with Drew. Okay, fair enough. I'm going to pick Derek White just because <laughs> I'm kind of pot committed as the president of the Derek White fan club, but I love Drew Holiday. And one of the other things, it's just a small note on Drew, and maybe I just have more of an appreciation for it now because I'm watching literally every minute that he plays. When he gets a defender on his back, there's nothing you can do. Like, he's so strong, and he just keeps that defender pinned to his back. And he either gets, like, an easy shot from floater range, or he finds 
somebody else. So that's something that obviously it's a very like small thing to look for mm-hmm. in a game. But whenever he gets a defender on his back, there's nothing that guy can do. All right. So I wanted to mention Jalen had that unreal dunk in the first quarter on Rudy Gobert, which that's going to be on the highlight film all season long. That was just nasty. And I do, in some sense, feel bad for Gobert. He went up and he tried to block the shot. Like, guys, get out of the way. I give him credit for that, but that's going to be a highlight all season long. But one of the things that has stuck out to me about Jalen so far is despite that huge dunk, if you look at his numbers, so last year he shot a career-high 57.6% on twos. It's down to 50.7% this season. Now, the three-point percentage is up a little bit. It's 36.4%. Not great, but a lot better than where he's actually at, than where he's normally at, I should say. He's taking 1.7 less twos per game, okay? So if you look at his numbers, that 50.7% on twos is 101st out of 142 qualifiers. Last year, 57.6%, 38th of 123 qualifiers. So we're talking about seven percentage points in terms of the difference. So his mid-range game is actually still good. And it's always, it's been good the past couple of years. And some of these mid-rangers he takes, they don't even hit the rim. I mean, he gets the perfect arc on them. If you look at his rim numbers, this is where it sticks out. So via cleaning the glass, 17 of 32 at the rim, 53.1%. 21st percentile last year, 304, 429, 70.9%, 82nd percentile. So I do believe this is something that is just happening early on in the season. We're only six games in, but I am kind of just surprised that Jalen's finishing at the rim has been that poor or this poor this season. Like these are Malcolm Brogdon numbers from last year where Malcolm Brogdon and Brogdon was Remember, he would just like throw layups off the backboard. <laughs> like you just, I mean, They were terrible. So I don't know. Do you notice anything with Jalen when he's getting to the rim? Is he challenging too many guys? I mean, there's nothing that really sticks out to me. It's just when I see the numbers and I saw the two point numbers, I was thinking to myself, what's wrong with his two point shooting? Because I feel like he's hitting all these mid rangers. So that's why I had to look up, like, how is he at this percentage? And it's at the rim, which maybe is the most shocking part out of all this, because Jalen was an elite finisher at the rim last season. Yeah, um, I did not know that stat before you said it. I'm looking at it now. Um, it is surprising. Uh, I think, honestly, just the way that I reacted to Derek White's hot shooting being not sustainable, like, it's so early in the season. Hey, you bite your tongue. You bite your tongue with Derek White. <laughs> it's just like some, there's going to be fluky stuff. It's been, a, it's a six-game sample size, um, and he's not going to shoot 50 3% at the rim this season. He shot 71% the past two years, 68% the year before that. Like he's uh, a lights out finisher and he's one of the most athletic players in basketball. And his athleticism is still there. It hasn't gone. If I'm, if I, like when I look at Jalen, the one thing I'm just like, you got to clean up is just the off ball defense. It's like the, that's like really it. And so, yeah, I don't like his, he's going to finish at the basket. If anything, I would say I would wonder how many of his opportunities have been in the half court versus in transition because he had a ton. I mean, he was near the top of the league in transition opportunities last season. And so when you're looking at at rim numbers, those are included layups, dunks um, with one defender in front of you going full speed. So, yeah, I just I, I again, like the numbers will, you know, that's not something to be concerned about, I don't think. Right now, I I do think that his, you know, sometimes he'll take 
he's just like a really tough shot maker sometimes when you watch him and it's a little frustrating in the flow of a game his decision making in terms of the types of shots that he'll even attempt when you know maybe a fade away a like pivoting with like using your pivot foot like for five straight seconds against Rudy Gobert in the pain and not getting anywhere and then still taking the fade away is not like the greatest decision um but generally i think he's okay and this is just still an adjustment period for all these guys and um that 53% will definitely boost up as the season goes along yeah, I just thought it was a weird number to start the season. To your point about the transition, he was at 1.14 points per per, uh, per possession in transition last year, 55th percentile, or this year, 55th percentile, 1.14. This year, or last year, 1.25, 75th percentile. So the transition numbers are down a little bit. So maybe that is part of it as well. But I don't expect it to hold up either. I just thought it was a weird thing to see early on in the season. This guy, we see him dunking on dudes all the time. That's why I was shocked to see oh, it's actually the rim numbers because I knew it wasn't the mid-range numbers because he's hitting like these mid-rangers like crazy. And he had a couple of those games where he's just going completely off. And he's now got the nice little step, the, the turnaround that Tatum has. And I know he kind of had that last year, but he's certainly got that. So I'm not worried about it. I just thought it was a weird trend. Okay, so Porzingis, we mentioned earlier, career high on threes, 42.9%. I get it. We're six games in, but he's doing it on 4.7 attempts. 12, I think he could actually, 12 of 28, I think he could actually take more. I do love the fact that the release is so quick. That's one thing I didn't appreciate him when he was playing for other teams is he took one against Brooklyn from the logo and mm-hmm. it wasn't even a hesitation. He just gets that thing and he's rifling them off on twos, 64.1% up from his career high last year at 55.9%. I think he's been awesome. You mentioned earlier the interesting wrinkle from Joe Missoula putting him on McDaniels, which I thought was smart because then he could help out defensively rather than being maybe a liability defensively getting matched up against in some of these switches, right? Like they're not going to use McDaniels to screen on Anthony Edwards. So I thought that was smart. All in all, I think he's been basically as advertised. I think I may have got a little too excited after the first game of the season against the Knicks where he just went off in the first quarter of that game. And I was thinking to myself, whoa, this is going to be electric all season long. But the whole idea of him, and that's why I was aggravated in that Minnesota game is I do feel like he brings a different element to this team, and I think we're already seeing it early on in this season. What have you made so far of Porzingis's addition? Looks great um, in terms of obviously the range. Um, what I'm really interested in is just his kind of where the shots are coming from. That's something I'm going to keep an eye on throughout the season. Uh, you can go to him at the elbow or at the nail, and he can get a good, pretty good look up over just about any defender in basketball. That's maybe not the most efficient use of him, though. And so if you just kind of look at the shot frequency from the mid-range on long twos, it's usually like really high throughout his career. Right now it's down to 6%, according to Cleaning the Glass. And at the rim, he's usually very low for a big. And last year, for example, it was 24%. Right now it's 42%. So catching lobs, ducking in, drawing fouls, um, taking advantage of switches, taking advantage of spacing. And I just think like his numbers are going to be whatever um, in terms of, you know, shot accuracy, the box score stats, like whatever. I'm just way more um, into how he influences the game and how he impacts his teammates and 
how he spaces the court, how he empties the paint. I mean, I just keep thinking about the, I know the Pacers game was kind of an anomaly, but like the paint was just so open. It was like they were not willing to help off of him at all. And like if defense, it's just, it's kind of just a crazy pick your poison. Um, and it's going to be like that for the whole season. I thought that the Timberwolves had to change what they want to do on defense in terms of switching whenever KP would set a screen and then pop behind the three-point line, and that put them into some uncomfortable situations, especially if you have to put a big on KP, and I don't think teams will do that for the entire season. That's something that, um, you know, you'll put a big on him sometimes, and you can run pick and roll, and then the Celtics will take advantage, but you'll probably put a wing on him. He's had big wings on him throughout most of his career. But doing that, I think still there's ways for him to really help you, um, be it spacing out a wing to the perimeter um, and then attacking elsewhere. So I I like his off-ball stuff with Jalen, as I mentioned before. Like those wide pin downs are really, really hard to guard. Um, like him doing stagger pick and roll, stagger screens with Tatum and Drew and Derek White. Uh, and he's a lob threat. And I, I that's one thing that like I'm a little surprised by is like the explosiveness in terms of getting to the rim getting to balls getting to lobs um it's like i thought that the vertical spacing that um rob williams provided was just gone forever but kp's kind of brought like provided a little bit of that in a lot of really helpful ways so um really like what i see from chris Porzingis. uh and you know i feel like if he were to average whatever, like 20, 20 and eight, 20 and nine, whatever, like he could easily be an all-star this season. Like that's the type of success that he's had that he can have on the team. And in a winning situation, Boston might have three all-stars. Who knows? Yeah, certainly could. They could have four if they, if they have this sort of pace where they're the top team in the Eastern conference throughout the season. And of course the showdowns coming up on Wednesday, as we mentioned earlier, Random thought on Porzingis. Have you noticed he doesn't stop smiling ever since he's been here? He talked about, <laughs> Pina, that he's in defensive paradise playing with Drew Holiday and Derek White. And then he references Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum as well. He just seems so happy. And I can understand why. Because you think about it, he starts off his career. He's with the Knicks. He's the original unicorn. Everybody's praising him. He starts mm-hmm. off awesome. Then he has the injuries. He ends up getting traded to Dallas. And he did have to begin things there, a really good postseason. And then he got injured, right? That series against the Clippers. The next year, not so great. And then he watches his team that he got traded from go to the Western Conference Finals without him. And it was almost as if, well, the reason they made it is because they got rid of the Porzingis guy. He goes to Washington and he sort of has to rehab his image, right? Because he's playing irrelevant basketball, but he plays so well. And I know the Celtics have liked him for years, But he catches the eye of a contender that says, hey, come on over, come play for a team that has aspirations to win a championship. So I have to imagine this whole idea that some people had before the season, how is he going to fit in being the fourth or the fifth option? I don't think that's going to be a problem at all. I think he's happy that his games are actually people actually watch him. People actually know what he's doing on a nightly basis. So I think he fits in perfectly with this team. And to the point that we made before the season when they made the trade, they needed to switch things up offensively. So I think he certainly brings that. So I, I've loved watching Porzingis so far this season. But you mentioned Rob Williams and just some Celtics adjacent thoughts here, Pina. I felt awful when you get that news from Rob. First of all, 
I felt awful that he was on that team. And you totally make, this is why you make the move. Well, first of all, you make the move because you get Drew Holiday, second best player on a team that won an NBA championship, one of the best defenders in the NBA, as we've mentioned multiple times. But the other reason you make that move is because the injury history, you just can't depend on him. As great as he was in that finals when he was a plus 30 in a finals that you lost four games to two, we haven't seen that guy since the finals, right? Because he's been dealing with all these injuries. Last season wasn't ready to go, and then he's banged up again. You just never know with him. And it's just unfortunately part of who he is. And the reason I felt bad he was on the Blazers, I was hoping right before the season he got flipped somewhere else that needed a big. I know Chris Vernon had mentioned Memphis because they were dealing with the Steven Adams situation, but certainly other teams across the league could use Rob Williams. And he just doesn't really fit on a team that is a lottery team that's not good and he's coming off the bench. I just felt like as a player, he was totally miscast with that situation. Even if Portland really liked the player, I just felt bad for Rob. And now this, it just... It's an awful break for Robert Robert Williams, but you can totally understand now why you had to, and this may sound mean to say, get out of the Robert Williams business. I feel like they had to do it, and I, I feel I legitimately feel bad for Rob. I really do. I mean, it just, because he worked so hard on his jump shot this summer, taking more mid-rangers, and he hit a couple this year. I'm like, whoa, I didn't even know Rob could do that. And last year, he probably wouldn't even try it because of the team that he was on. So I thought there... He did a lot in the summer. He talked about the fact this is his first summer where he could actually work on basketball stuff. And now we're five games into a season and he's already out. Yeah, it's like super sad. Um, that was like a terrible text alert to get last night that he was having potentially season ending surgery. And I was watching the game when he went down against the Grizzlies live. And, you know, he got up and he kind of hobbled to the bench and I was just like, I hope this isn't anything. It didn't look that serious at the time, but um, yeah, when you when you kind of add the context in that a much better team or a team that was trying to be more competitive would have certainly traded for him before the trade deadline because he is such a difference-making presence on both ends of the floor. Like one team that I've thought that would be really perfect for him would be the Houston Rockets with Ime Udoka. Like that just was like a like hand in glove fit. They have the assets. They yeah. really want a rim protector. Shingun's been really good. Like that's my guy in Houston's three and three. And they just spanked the Sacramento Kings by like fifty five points last night or something. But like Rob Williams would have been a perfect big. They're perfect rim protecting big. Um they've got spacers. Like he can pass. He's just it's a shame because he's also just one of the most exciting players to watch. He's like, there's really nothing like it when he leaves his feet to, to catch a lob or on the defensive end, like you can't take jump shots around him. He's just, he changes um, offensive game plan single-handedly. Like he was my pick before he was traded to, like I thought the goal for him should have been defensive player of the year. And before he had the surgery in March of 2022, I think it was the year that they went to the finals, like Marcus Smart won Defensive Player of the Year that year, but before Robert Williams had that surgery, he was the best defender on the team, like significantly, and probably would have won the award. So that's the type of player he is, the type of talent he is, and uh, I just hope he recovers and is able to still have a, an impactful career going forward. Yeah, I totally agree. I didn't even think that Houston. That's a great call. He would have been perfect for that Houston team. All right. So another Celtics Jason thing I wanted to get to, Pina, is Grant Williams. So. This was amazing to me on Friday night. Um, I get the league pass going on my computer. I got all these games on. And Grant Williams, this quote comes out that they were 
All these courts are new, which the courts are a little too much to me. I don't get people complaining about the NBA in-season tournament. Even if it doesn't work out, I don't think it's a big issue. Like they're trying to do things to make the games more exciting. I mean, I I don't think it's going to work this year. You're going to have to build it up. But like, I don't blame them for trying. I think Mm -hmm. most of the jerseys, like I would say half, more than half of them stink. Denver's are awful. But anyway, my point with this is they changed the court, which I don't think they needed to do that. So Grant Grant said, or the curvature was painted too far back on the blue and yellow floor that Denver had put together in terms of the three-point line. This is hilarious, and this would happen to Grant Williams. Grant Williams said that I'm like, there's no way this is supposed to be this far. Everything was short, plus I could just tell them from my perception, either it was the blue court or it's just messing with my eyes in the empty arena or the line is long. So they actually figured out that the three-point line was too far. And they got it wrong on the court. And I'm starting to think to myself after this, do you think that happened in any other arenas? Like, did anybody else fuck up the three-point line? (laughs) It's amazing to me that Grant's like, something is wrong here. Because he's been shooting the shit out of the ball. I mean, he's shooting 54.3% of threes this year, 25 of 46. And he's averaging 15.1 per game. He's playing awesome. But when when I saw that story, I was laughing so hard. I'm like, they did all this stuff to get these new courts. And then this happens. My number one, well, first of all, very funny story. Grant is a genius. I uh, can't slip anything by him. But, like, I was watching the the first game. It was Pacers and Cavs, I think it was. Yeah. And Tyrese Halliburton, like, slipped on the court and did, like, splits, like, two minutes into the game. And I was just like, what? Come on. Like, what is happening right now? Like, it's like I know it's just like the court is the court, whatever. But I'm just like like Buddy Heald went for a loose ball and like fell on his ass and almost got injured. Like guy, I'm just like kind of tracking in my notepad like how many players are just randomly slipping and sliding over the court. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't think there's, I don't know if there's like a if the court is to blame for that or like I don't understand how courts are made if like there's extra slick paint to get those bright colors I mean the the Chicago Bulls game was like actually unwatchable I couldn't really even see the basketball on my laptop oh yeah the red bright red yeah it's like what what is going on um so I'm I'm also not you know getting too worked up but since you asked me about it the courts are really interesting some of the jerseys are really interesting the I you know I go to the live in Brooklyn, go to the, see the Nets. Their jerseys just aren't for me. It, they, I, I don't know if anyone's seen them, but it just looks like a kid took a, a, a paintbrush and just like splattered random colors onto. Were um, those the ones that were in Saturday too? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. Those, yeah. Are, those are horrendous. They had the cool ones, the city uniforms a couple years ago, like the biggie theme ones. Those mm-hmm. ones are pretty cool. I thought. Yeah, they were. Um, don't know what the status is of those, but uh, yeah, Grant Williams just he's he's playing. You know, I I always thought he was a really good player for sure. Um, playing a little bit of his head right now, to be honest with you. I don't think he's gonna shoot over fifty percent from behind the three point line, even though Luca is just like diming him up and he's wide open for all these looks, and he's probably really enjoying himself. He's like second on the team in minutes, just living it up. So happy for him. The defense is still so atrocious in Dallas, it's not even funny. And um, as good of a defender as he is, he can't solve all their issues. But um, it's fun for him to be there and uh, to have this opportunity to take advantage of it because he's playing with like one of the best passers, basically, well, in the league right now, for sure, and who's ever lived. 
probably. Um, yeah. And did you see the one? So I was watching the beginning of that game on Monday night. Luca made a pass where his back was turned. He was driving on the right side of the court. Grant was in the right corner wide open. He threw it behind his head to mm-hmm. Grant. And Grant hit a three. I'm like, this is just incredible that he can't even find that. You made the interesting point, too, before the season or after we had you on right after the Drew trade. And you made a really interesting point that now I think the answer is yes. If the Celtics knew they were going to go into the second apron for the Drew trade, would they have kept Grant? Because at that point, you're in the second apron. And man, he's missed. I do think that it's good for him to have this opportunity, though, where he's legitimately like part of their big three. He's like kind of trolling Dallas fans the other day, wearing the Eagles shirt after the game, like typical Grant stuff. So good for him that he's having this opportunity. But man, he would be really good for the Celtics right now, especially, too, when you think about the potential playoff stuff, just his defensive versatility. I do wonder. You think if you injected them with true serum, they would say they Grant would be on the team if they knew that Drew was coming? Potentially, yeah. I mean, he's a really good player. They're trying to win the title. Um, your luxury tax bill, I don't know what the exact figures are. I don't have them in front of me. It would go up uh, a lot. For yeah. sure, and it was a long-term deal, too, so you'd have to worry about that. Um, there's ways to get off that money. I mean, I feel like he has a value contract around the league. Yeah. Teams, he fits everywhere. You could move him in a pinch. So, yeah, um, I guess we'll see in the playoffs. We'll see, again, going back to what I said earlier about Al looking a little little mm-hmm. old last night. There's only one game. Um, a lot of minutes for Luke Cornett in that one. Um, yeah, yeah, so we'll see if they come to regret that or need someone like that. I mean, O'Shea Brissett didn't play. He's kind of someone who can ideally fill some of the defensive stuff. He's not as good, but um, he's a body. So we'll see. Um, Grant's a winner. Really good player. Really good all-around player. I don't think the three-point shooting is necessarily going to hold, but he's he's a really good three-point shooter for sure. All right, Pina, before we let you go, so Celtics-Philly showdown coming up on Wednesday night. Philly's been playing much faster. I know it's early, 11th in pace compared to 27th, and maybe part of that is no James Harden, Maxie's pushing the ball, but also you still have Embiid, and you're playing 11th in pace. Embiid just went off against Washington. I think he had, like, what, 48 points or whatever it was. He barely missed. Maxie's been awesome. Tobias Harris has been good for them. It's been a nice pick for me on FanDuel for the overs in terms of his points and it's not just him standing in the corner anymore. Like he's actually been active in transition, which is something you'd like to see from Philly's perspective, maybe not from a Celtics perspective, but, and obviously Nick Nurse and Doc Rivers out. What have you noticed from Philly so far? And how do you think they match up with the Celtics? So you still give the Celtics a significant edge? I do. Um, Philly is, Philly has been really impressive since their one point opening night loss to the Bucks. Um, I will say, like, I want to see them like beat a real team. Like, not I, I, I just say like for the rest. Of, I know the Celtics beat the Wizards. Like for the rest of the season, whatever you do against the Washington Wizards just like doesn't count for me personally. I just don't even. It's like it's truly Washington general stuff the way they're playing basketball. So, um, you know, he had this amazing statistical output for sure. It was a blowout win. I they dropped like one. 40 something on them and that's a really positive thing that you're going to have for your net rating and like their point differential this season so far through six games is like plus 79 which is like 
really rarefied air since like the three point era started. Um, so it, you can't really take too much away from them. Like they beat up on the Suns without Booker and Beal on a matinee game. Um, beat the Raptors twice. I thought those were pretty solid wins. Played Portland. So like I, I want to see them play real NBA competition before I uh, get too excited about Philadelphia as a real title contender. I think that I wrote about this after the Harden trade. I don't necessarily think that they will make a big move in season for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think that this offseason is kind of when they can reshuffle a little bit around Embiid and get really interesting. So going forward, it's kind of like wait and see for me with them. Like I'm not buying uh, Kelly Oubre right now. I'm not really <laughs> buying uh, Tobias Harris. I, you made the point about him pushing and transition more. That's why their pace is up. And that's like guys have more freedom in Nick Nurse's offense to do stuff. That's great. Uh, Tyrese Maxey's a really good player. Could be an all-star this season. And Embiid is like an MVP candidate again. I think they're still, they just don't match up well against the Celtics. Um, I should say, before I get into that, like, I, I like Nick Batum a lot. I didn't get to see him play against the Wizards. I think he had a pretty good game. I like uh, I like Rocco. So that's some size on the wing that ironically, like, actually helps them in a matchup against, uh, in a matchup against any of the yeah. elite teams in the Eastern Conference, including the Celtics. Those are big wings that they just haven't had who can shoot threes and do a little stuff off the bounce. I still just don't really think that they're like a particularly worrisome matchup um, for Boston. Uh, I just said Batum and Rocco. Neither of those guys can guard Tatum. Uh, I think Maxie's still a defensive liability, even though he's a little bit better, a little more feisty on that end. And yeah, like again, I'm not... Like Kelly Oubre shooting like I don't know like eighty percent behind the three point line like that's just not gonna hold. Um, and I do like how they're playing offense though. Just in the half court, I like how that system looks, and the way they've took to it as fast as they have is really impressive from what they were doing before with James Harden and just like a lot of high pick and roll, a lot of ISO basketball. Um. So they're good. Like they're a lot better than I thought they would be. Don't get me wrong. Um, they could finish second in the Eastern Conference. Um, that's great. But like at the end of the day, there's a few teams where it's just like I don't care that much about what you do in the regular season. They're one of those teams to their credit. Like I want to see what you do in the playoffs. Like wake me when we get to the second round, and Joel Embiid, you know, breaks his face again. So. We'll see. Um, it's going to be fun to see them kind of go on this journey, though, together and um, exceed expectations and maybe put themselves in position for like a little marginal trade that Daryl Morey can make. I know that's like not what he wants to do. And I just don't think that they're going to make a move for like a uh, like Zach Levine's been the name that everyone's kind of talking about around the oh. league. I just don't see that for a variety of reasons. I don't think he's necessarily a winning player or someone who you would blow up all your cap space for, even though trading for him before the offseason would allow you to re-sign your own free agents, like Tobias and uh, DeAnthony Melton, those kind of guys. I just I don't think locking yourself into a Maxi Levine and B trio is going to beat the Celtics or 
you know, whatever the Miami Heat are able to do as an organization going forward, or the Bucks. Um, so, yeah, like, I guess we'll see. I just, I, I want to see them play like real teams. I guess is like the the short answer after a long answer. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I never understood the Levine stuff. That makes no sense to me. Literally, all that guy does is shoot. He's not a good defensive player. He doesn't pass. I don't understand that fit at all. And the transition stuff that you mentioned, that's like a Nick Nurse thing for years now. Going back to the year without Kawhi, they just started pushing the ball. They took like the low-hanging fruit in the NBA. Their offense in the half court was bad that year. They just pushed the ball mm-hmm. and got points that way. It was like, it was a nice thing that they did. It's like we talk about in the NFL, it's the play-action pass game. Take advantage, run. Not a lot of te- teams don't get back all the time. And then in terms of the Ubre stuff, it's amazing to me because I was watching that game against the Raptors. What was that, Friday night? Mm-hmm. he just chucks and he was hitting everything you know that he's hit all three like all his threes in three games in three other games he, he's hit no threes so it's, it's completely <laughs> like feast or famine with yep. him but I'm, I'm excited for wednesday you mentioned the box i think their defense is a real problem it was a real problem even though they won on monday night i watched a good portion of that game against the nets that was not effective but cannot wait for this game and then they play the box the wednesday before thanksgiving so that'll be fun as well. All right, that is Michael Pina from The Ringer. Pina, great catching up with you, man. Enjoy the game Wednesday night and continue to enjoy Wemby, even though they got their ass kicked by the Pacers last <laughs> night. They kicked the Suns' ass and then they got their ass kicked by the Pacers. Thanks so much, Brian. Always a blast. As the weather gets colder, the NFL offers stay hot on FanDuel. Right now, all customers get a no sweat same game parlay for every Thursday night football game. Just place a three-leg same-game parlay, and you'll get bonus bets back if you don't win. A couple of things I like in this game coming up between the Bears and the Panthers. The under 39.5, obviously neither one of these offenses are great. I'd also take both quarterbacks to throw an interception. Bryce Young has just been atrocious for Carolina this year. He was actually better than he normally is last week, but man, we talk about the frustration as a Patriots fan. They took Bryce Young over C.J. Stroud, and now C.J. Stroud is one of the best rookie quarterbacks in the history of the NFL statistically. And guess what? The Panthers don't have a first-round pick next year. It goes to the Bears. Man, just mismanagement. NFL same-game parlays are the perfect way to combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payday. Build your own or choose from one of the popular SGPs pre-built for you in FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. Just visit FanDuel.com Pike for your chance to get a no-sweat same-game parlay every Thursday. FanDuel, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, must be 21 plus and president select states. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Max refund $5 unless otherwise specified. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com special offer, all lowercase. 
That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Michael Pina. Always enjoy chatting Celts in the NBA with Pina. That was a lot of fun. So I do want to transition, though, to the Patriots. And first of all, this just stuck out to me the other day. I put this out there on Twitter on Monday. So, so far this season, Jacoby Myers, 40 receptions, 442 yards, five touchdowns. I know we've done the Jacoby thing a lot, but hear me out on this. Jonu Smith, 34 receptions, 422 yards, and two touchdowns. So that's combined 75 receptions, 864 yards, and seven touchdowns. The two guys the Patriots let go. Juju, 21 receptions, 104 yards, one touchdown. Gasecki, 19 receptions, 160 yards, one touchdown. So the two guys they brought in compared to the two guys they let go in terms of your second tight end was supposed to be Gasicki. Last year, it was Janu. Your number one weapon was Jacoby last year is supposed to be Juju this year. So combined, they have 40 receptions to Juju and Gasicki, 300 yards, two touchdowns. Again, that number for Janu is at, and Jacoby, 75 receptions compared to the 44 Juju and Gasicki, 864 yards for Myers and Jonu Smith, 300 for the Patriots. So 564 more yards for Gasicki or for Janu and Jacoby over Gasicki. And of course, Juju. And then the seven touchdowns to two touchdowns. So it's just bad. So anyway, you slice it. This is bad for Bill. He's supposed to be a genius. Well, Jonu Smith already has more receptions through nine games than he had any of his two years with the Patriots. He already has 128 more receiving yards than he had any year with the Patriots. So we all said how bad Jonu was and he sucked. And we know that he wasn't good, but the offense really never made sense for him here. And it does with the way that he's fitting in Atlanta, where he goes to Arthur Smith, heavy play action scheme. So if you look at it, Ritter, who stinks, he's top six in attempts out of play action. That's what they did with Tannehill in Tennessee when Arthur Smith was the offensive coordinator. Get Jonu the ball in space, let him run after the catch. This is where he thrives. So that contract was horrendous because you got nothing out of the player, right? But you misevaluated how you were going to use him. So it was both a coaching and a GM issue. It's embarrassing that these two guys leave the building and they've been so good outside of the Patriots system. And it's just because John, who's not a perfect player, he's an incredibly flawed player. But there's one specific way that you can use him in a heavy play action system where he's going to have the opportunity to run after the catch. The Patriots signed him and they didn't do that, right? I mean, the play action numbers continue to go down with Mac Jones and the Patriots offense last year compared to two years ago. You were, If you were going to have, like, you had to understand he's not going to be this amazing route runner or anything along those lines. He had to be schemed up and the Patriots just totally whiffed on that situation. I'm not saying he, would, he was going to be this good here because they weren't going to coach him up properly. They weren't going to take advantage of his skill set. He's not a good player. Like, let me, like, not a great player, I should say, but used in a specific way, he can be effective. So if you weren't going to use him in that specific way, in a heavy play action scheme, it just made no sense to bring him in. So I'll still be perplexed by the situation to bring him in if you weren't going to have him. Like when they brought him in, you look at his yards after the catch per reception, he was elite, right? Even with the Patriots, he was elite. But the problem was the scheme never made sense bringing in Jonu Smith, right? So the thing that sticks out to me is guys used to leave and then come back and they were Worse when they left, and then when they came back, they were good again. Remember, this happened to Dion Branch. It happened to Jamie Collins. And then you would have guys that they brought in that the Patriots would bring here, and they were better than they were at their previous destination. For example, Kyle Van Noy. People thought he was a bust when he was with Detroit. He was really good for the Patriots. And then a guy like, for example, Stephon Gilmore, where 
Everybody at the time thought that was an overpay for Gilmore. He won Defensive Player of the Year in 2019. He was elite for this team. Mike Vrabel, another guy who was with the Steelers, he came to the Patriots and he became an incredible player. He just went into the Patriots Hall of Fame, what, two weeks ago, right? The opposite is now true. I guess J.C. Jackson's the exception, although who the hell knows what's going on with that situation at this particular point in time. But it just brings me to a bigger point, and it's something I've alluded to and I've hinted at before, but it's getting worse right now, not better. And I really, truly believe the only way that Bill can make it work here again as the head coach and the head decision maker of the Patriots, the only way he can make it work again is if he gets a Greg Popovich-like miracle. So what do I mean by that? So let's just think about this. There are similarities between the two coaches that both of them have the argument as the greatest coach in their respective sports, right? Where I'm saying arguments, not definitively. Obviously, some, especially here locally, would say Red is the best coach in the NBA history. Some would argue Phil Jackson. But either way, you could make an argument for Popovich, even if I disagree that it should be Red. You could make an argument for Popovich as the greatest coach of all time, right? It wouldn't be crazy. If you talk to somebody, they said, yeah, I think Greg Popovich is the best coach in NBA history. There's no way that you could tell that person they're crazy. His resume is outstanding. Bill, you could make the argument that he's the greatest coach of all time, although he's sort of hurting his resume right now. The whole he can't win without Tom thing, it, it has more legs to it now than it did prior to Tom going to Tampa. But think about their careers. So Bill flames out in Cleveland. He then joined Parcells' staff with the Patriots. Then he's with the Jets as an assistant with Parcells. And then he gets a second chance with the Patriots as a head coach. And we all know that he gets Brady in 2000. The rest is history. So he had familiarity with the Patriots where he went back to the Patriots after previously being an assistant with the Patriots. Greg Popovich. Popovich worked for Larry Brown at Kansas as a volunteer assistant. Then in 87-88, he joins Larry Brown's staff with the Spurs. Yeah, Larry Brown coached like every team in college and in the NBA, it feels like. Then in 1992, that entire staff was fired. Pop goes to Golden State briefly, works for Don Nelson there. And then he goes to the Spurs as the GM of the team, does Popovich. So the Spurs start the 96-97 season. They go 3-15. and David Robinson was dealing with a back injury. Popovich then fires the head coach at the time that was Bob Hill, and he makes himself the head coach. So Robinson then, as we mentioned, he was hurt to begin the season. Then he breaks his foot, and the Spurs end up winning just 20 games, and they get Tim Duncan. The rest is history, right? So Popovich went to an organization that he had previously been with. Bill went to an organization that he would, had previously been with. And Bill lucked into Brady in the sixth round, right? Popovich lucks into the ping pong balls, and he gets Tim Duncan, right? Because if you think about it, <laughs> If David Robinson doesn't get hurt, you're not in position to get, like David Robinson, despite the fact that, like, we all know Hakeem Olajuwon greatly outplayed him in the NBA Finals and all that, but great, but he was, David Robinson was a great player, unbelievable defensive player, right? So they both sort of got lucky there, and both of the guys they selected, right? Now, if you want to go back, say, like 25 years or so, you would say LeBron's over Duncan. But during his era, like Duncan's prime for 15 years, he was the most dependable, best player in the NBA. To me, he's more valuable than Shaq and Kobe, right? I mean, consistently, the guy's going to win you 50 games. They both come in and they win immediately. Think about the similarities. Like, so Bill has unequivocally the greatest player of all time. Popovich has the best player of his generation and a top 10 guy in the history of the NBA. And both those guys win immediately, right? Now, Tom had more help than Duncan did. Now, Duncan had a great team, but Tom wins in his first year as a starter. 2001, second year in the NFL. 
Duncan wins in his second year as a player in 1999. So they immediately, Popovich and Belichick, have success with their stars. Tom wins the Super Bowl and he wins the Super Bowl MVP. Duncan wins the finals and he wins the finals MVP. They also, both guys, inherited massive pieces to the team, okay, to go along with their young and up-and-coming stars. Now, obviously, Duncan became a top-five player in the league two years into his career. It took Brady a little bit longer than that. But here's my point. Popovich inherited David Robinson, as I said, a former MVP. Also had a guy like Sean Elliott, who's a really good wing. And you can say, well, yeah, the Patriots weren't good with Pete Carroll. Well, they made the playoffs a couple of years with Pete Carroll. But yeah, they faded off. But that roster, a lot of the guys were still there from the 96 team that made it to the Super Bowl, right? They had Willie McGinnis, who has the most sacks in the history of the playoffs. Teddy Bruschi, Ty Law, who's in the Hall of Fame. Lawyer Malloy, outstanding safety. Troy Brown and Terry Glenn, really good offensive pieces, right? So they had a good foundation with the Patriots. Popovich with Robinson, who's an all-time great guy too, like awesome teammate, perfect guy to sort of give the keys to Tim Duncan eventually. So that was a perfect foundation for the Spurs. And with the Patriots, Belichick inherited all those great defensive players that he also knew because he coached them previously. And he had a couple of really good offensive players too with Troy Brown and with Terry Glenn, okay? And then both of these guys got lucky in a sense, right? The Robinson injury, you could argue, is the best thing that ever happened to the Spurs organization. I know that sounds unfair, but it allowed them to win the lottery and it allowed them to get Tim Duncan, right? If Robinson doesn't get hurt, as we mentioned, that never happens. You don't get Tim Duncan if David Robinson doesn't get hurt the year prior. With Belichick, he needed a push to draft Tom Brady in the sixth round. Remember, they had signed Drew Bloodsoe to a $100 million contract. And remember, the Mo Lewis hit is ultimately what got Brady into the game in 2001. So there was certainly some level of luck with Bill getting Tom and then how it worked out. Just like with Greg Popovich, there was some luck that was involved in getting Tim Duncan an injury. In both cases, you could point to the injury, right? Now, both guys were unreal coaches and are unreal coaches. And I'm not saying... It was just right place, right time. But there is some sense of that, right? Like, obviously, you've got to be a great coach. But there are a ton of coaches that would have not succeeded the way that Greg Popovich and Bill Belichick did. I am not denying that whatsoever. You cannot deny that. Pop won five. Bill got six. I'm not saying that these guys, their whole history is based on luck. I'm not an idiot. I'm not crazy. I'm just pointing out the fact that these guys got really nice breaks early on in their tenures, Popovich early on in San Antonio, Bill early on with the Patriots, with the Brady pick, and of course, as we mentioned, with the Robinson injury and then Tim Duncan. Okay, and there was a culture built with those teams, and their star players were part of building that culture, and secondarily, their star players made other guys better, right? Remember, the Spurs drafted Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker. Those guys developed into their big three. And look, those guys most likely work out in other situations. And the Spurs were kind of ahead of teams in terms of drafting foreign players. But are those guys as good without Tim Duncan, right? Like the Spurs, if you think about it, if Manu just goes to Charlotte, if Parker goes to Sacramento, are they the same type of players? I don't know, Sacramento, I guess maybe a bad example. They were good early on in the 2000s. But you get my point. If they went to a bad organization, are they the same level of players? No, like those guys are good players, but they got elevated by playing with Tim Duncan. And just think about this in terms of the culture that the superstar sets. So the Spurs went to Manu and they told him he could start, but he didn't want to because he thought it was better for the team if he came off the bench as that six man 
jolt of energy off the bench giving you scoring. That's the culture that was built. Most guys wouldn't do that. Say, no, no, I want to come off the bench because they knew it was best for the team when it would mean playing less minutes and it would mean less of an opportunity to make all-star games. Manu said, yeah, I'm fine coming off the bench because that culture was set by Tim Duncan. Remember, the other thing that Duncan did is he signed for less money. He signed for three years and 30.3 million after the 11-12 season. Why did he do that? Well, he had already won a bunch of championships, but he wanted another one. And part of the reason or part of what happened because he did that, they were able to sign Boris Diaw, Danny Green, and Patty Mills. So they were able to keep those guys on the team because Tim Duncan took less money. And obviously, we know that all those guys were critical to the Spurs winning the championship in 2014. None of that is possible without Tim Duncan taking less money because what he was concerned about was winning. Duncan, then after the title year, signed for 2 and 10.8 mil. And you could say, okay, he wasn't in his prime anymore. We all get that. But he could have got more than $10.8 million. What did that allow them to do? Well, they signed LaMarcus Aldridge and David West in free agency. And they signed Kawhi Leonard at that time to a max contract. So, look, they didn't win a championship after that. But Tim Duncan allowed them to get more pieces to try to win a championship at the end of his career. So his career earnings, Tim Duncan, $242 million, could have easily been north of $300 million, But he was more concerned about winning, right? And this is what we saw from Tom Brady for years. Brady took less for so long that other guys took less. Well, if Tom isn't the highest paid quarterback, I don't have to be the highest paid whatever position I'm playing, right? That's sort of what leaks down to the teammates. Now, obviously, there are certain exceptions, but we saw a guy like Danny Amendola take a ton of pay cuts until eventually he was pissed about it. But he did it for years, not because he wanted to stay and play for Bill, but he wanted to play with Tom. But the point being, Brady taking less allowed you to add more pieces, just like what we talk about with Tim Duncan, right? And the culture Duncan set is the same thing with Brady. Brady's work ethic led to guys busting their ass, the attention to detail, right? Tom demanded a lot from his players, and that carries over. That helps the culture. He helps build the culture. So both guys have so much success, and they didn't just have the best players in the sport. Those guys set a culture and they took less money because they cared about winning. So it's not just their on court or in the case of Tom on field dominance that made those guys great and enhanced their coaches, but it was also their ability to set a culture and be willing to take less money because all they wanted to do was win. Now, Brady at the end just wanted to be respected and he wasn't. We don't have to rehash the contract, the fake con, the fake, the void years and then not giving him the Drew Brees deal, right? Like that was just flat out insulting at the end. But for most of the 20 years, it was good. And Popovich and Belichick had an advantage building their rosters because their superstar was taking less money, unlike the Kobe Bryants and unlike the Peyton Mannings, right? Unlike the Shaqs, they were taking less money, willing to do it. These other superstars were not. That's very unique, okay? Both had mind-numbing decisions, Belichick and Popovich, after... Or I should say it this way. Both of them had mind-numbing decisions that cost their star another championship, okay? So Popovich not having Tim Duncan out there on the Ray Allen shot at the end of the game where that allows Chris Bosh to get the rebound, that's just, it's a bad mistake from a, one of the greatest coaches in the history of the sport. There was no reason to do that. Tim Duncan should have been on the court. Bills is Malcolm Butler, right? Why wasn't Malcolm Butler on the field in the Super Bowl, right? But because the culture was so strong with both those guys, like the Butler situation could have ruined the Patriots and maybe in some sense it played a role in it, but it was more personal stuff than the Butler situation. Tom had one of the best games we've ever seen through for 500 yards. He doesn't get a ring because his coach didn't play Butler. 
Tim Duncan and the Spurs, they win a ring if they just put Tim Duncan on the court at the end of the game. But both those, if you think about it, those those heartbreaking losses, both guys were such great leaders, Duncan and Brady, that they got everyone to pull the rope in the same direction, okay? Tom was also dealing with the disrespecting, like he was upset about his contract at that time. Obviously, that was not the case with Duncan at all. But unlike Duncan, Tom's job was actually harder from that perspective, where he was dealing with, he had an issue at that time with the coach, right? He had an issue with the GM, who's also Bill Belichick. But those guys, those are excruciating losses. And both teams won the championship the next year. That just tells you how much of a culture the player set to overcome the huge mistakes that their coaches made in critical moments. Okay, then I would mention this. So a couple similarities there. Then Popovich has his next superstar in Kawhi Leonard. Kawhi gets hurt in that game one against Curry and the Durant Warriors, and he was awesome that season, right? But then he had his issues. Kawhi, notably a mysterious guy, he had that weird quad injury, and he was upset with how the Spurs handled it. Remember, at one point, he's rehabbing at the Players Association facility in New York. But remember what happened, okay? Tony Parker said this. It was a rehab for me for eight months. Same kind of injury, but mine was 100 times worse, but that same kind of injury. Okay, so Tony Parker is saying, I had this injury, but it was way worse than Kawhi's, and he's nowhere to be found. Obviously, Kawhi had a real issue with his quad. I mean, the next year, he's barely playing when he goes to Toronto. But the whole point of this is, okay, does that comment get made if Tim Duncan's still on the team? If Tim Duncan's still the culture setter of that organization? Look, and maybe the answer is the Kawhi thing was never going to work out in San Antonio, like the medical staff, all this different type of stuff. But maybe it's different if you have one of the greatest leaders of this generation actually still in the locker room and around the facility, uh, around the facility. Okay, it's also kind of like the Patriots, right, where they had a fractured locker room last year. The Max Zappi situation, it was a mess. So sure, you still have the Devin McCourty's, the Matthew Slater's, the David Andrews around, but without the guy that set the, that set the culture, it's not the same, right? And now we're seeing this year, Jack Jones liking tweets about the fact that he wasn't on the field, J.C. Jackson not showing up, guys not starting games, guys being benched, right? Like all this controversy. Does that stuff happen with Tom Brady still here? The answer is probably no, because yes, there were issues with the Patriots, but they over they always overcame that shit and they won. Okay, so the Spurs, when they ultimately traded Kawhi, he's traded for DeMar DeRozan, Yaka Pirtle, and a protected first round pick. So with that first round pick, they end up getting Keldon Johnson, who is fine, but certainly not a star player in the league. And the trade made no sense. We get it in some sense, like the Spurs at that point, it was broken, the relationship, they had to move on. But the situation there, it was really bad. Who knows what side is really truly to blame. But the point being is, you're trading at the time, a top five player in the NBA in Kawhi. And I get he only has one year remaining on his contract. But on that Raptors roster that you traded him to, they had Pascal Siakam, OG Ananobi, and Fred Van Fleet. Okay, all three of those guys were better young players than Jakob Pertl, okay? Pertl's a fine player. Actually, ironically, he's back on the Raptors now, as we all know. But how do you not get back one of those three guys in the Kawhi trade? You need to get a young player and start the rebuild, right? And I'm not saying either of those guys completely changed the fortune of the organization, but those are young, better pieces than Jakob Pertl. And then the other guy I would say is the main piece that comes back in that trade is DeMar DeRozan. DeRozan was a proven playoff loser. 
Heck, they called Toronto LeBronto because he kicked DeMar DeRozan's ass so bad. I know he's done it to a lot of guys, but the prior playoff run, the year before they traded for him, DeRozan shot 43.7% from the floor in the playoffs. The year before that, it was 43.4%. The year before that, it was 39.4%. The guy had never been good in the postseason, and he doesn't shoot threes. So he could not be the main piece to any team. And all the proof you needed is the next year, Kawhi goes to that same team. That's the difference. Kawhi over DeMar, they win the championship, right? Okay, so they were trading away a top three guy. And all they got back, essentially, in terms of young guys, was one first-round pick who's Keldon Johnson, who is a fine player, but he's not a great player. Hell, the Clippers just got two firsts for James Harden and a pick swap. He's a free agent at the end of the season as well. And the Spurs didn't get any of those young guys. And at the time, I know Kawhi had an injury history, but he was in his prime. Harden is past his prime and also a free agent just like Kawhi. So what Popovich wanted to do was stay relevant. What he got in return was DeMar DeRozan. What was the relevancy? One playoff appearance in 19, they lost to the Nuggets in the first round. They haven't been back to the playoffs since, okay? And DeRozan has spent the last two plus seasons in Chicago. So he wasn't even there long. So he basically traded for this guy to get one playoff appearance, right? So what Popovich thought is he could still be good with DeRozan even though everyone knew that he wasn't a good playoff player. He thought, okay, we can still be at a competitive team going forward. Well, the reality was you were for one year, okay? And during the same time, Kawhi won a championship in Toronto. That same year he was traded. Sound familiar? Brady was unhappy here. He won a title in his first year in Tampa. So each player sort of proved their point. And look, different circumstances. Tom never wanted to leave. Clearly, Kawhi's situation was different. It was a complete mess. He wanted to leave. Tom was pushed out of the building, right, by getting lowballed. So Bill, like Popovich, tried with a guy that had proven he isn't the guy you build around, right? So with Popovich, it was DeRozan trying to be relevant. With the Patriots, they bring in Cam Newton because all they had was Jarrett Sidham and Brian Hoyer. They were unprepared without Brady. And what happened with Cam Newton? Well, Cam, maybe if this was 2016, it would have made sense. But Newton was damaged goods that nobody wanted to trade for that offseason right? And nobody wanted to sign it because everybody knew he had a bum shoulder. The Patriots tried to make it work with Cam Newton. They thought they could stay relevant. So like Pop, Bill tried to stay relevant despite, remember, Bill kept referencing all the salary cap stuff and all that. So after that, Bill has this crazy spending spree. He drafts Mac. And of course, he then goes out, he big money for Judon, Hunter Henry, Janu, Nelson Aguilar. They get a boost, they go to the playoffs. But we all know after 2021, the Patriots were not a real contender. They got killed by the Bills. Nobody believed in that team going forward. So just like everyone knew the Spurs were not a real contender after the 2019 season or after they traded away Kawhi, they tried to stay relevant, okay? So then the Spurs, with DeRozan, he leaves in free agency. The Spurs ultimately decided to go to a rebuild, right? Like the Patriots right now, after 2021, they get worse in 2022 and they're second last in the NFL in point differential, and they're two and seven right now. So it just so happened that they just got worse. Like the Spurs, they tried with DeRozan, and then they just got worse. The second year with DeRozan was not as good, and then they just realized we got a bunch of young guys and we're not good. So ultimately, the Spurs decided to embrace the tank, and they get Victor Wembanyama, who is incredible, right? He's the best prospect since LeBron James when he's coming out of the or coming out of France. So it took Pop failing with DeMar DeRozan and trying to stay relevant to realize, hey, we just have to bottom out. Now with this Patriots organization, Mac has been atrocious. Bill's team has been horrible. Now he wasn't trying to tank, right? Bill was trying to win. 
Popovich didn't start out trying to tank, but eventually after he traded, traded Kawhi, he sort of realized after DeMar DeRozan trying to be the guy there, they couldn't win. He, he's not the guy. Bill wanted to prove that he could win without Tom. Well, like Pop, he has one playoff appearance and you got beat. Popovich had one playoff appearance and he got beat after the Kawhi trade. And then really when you start to think about this thing, Popovich was okay embracing the tank, right? Because of what was out there, the number one prospect since LeBron James. So what Bill now hopefully is realizing, the only way to turn this thing around is embrace the tank, right? And maybe you could argue he partially did that the other day against Washington when he decided to stop giving the ball to Ramondre, right? Now, maybe part of that's on Bill O'Brien, but I don't understand that. Anyway, the Pats aren't close like the Spurs weren't close a couple of years ago, right? And they're still not close, obviously. They're not a title contending team. They didn't have a star, the Spurs. Their best player was what? Devin Vassell. I like Jeremy Sohan, but... And I like Trey Jones a lot too, but no disrespect to those guys. If you don't have Wemby, those pieces really don't matter because none of those guys are number one options, right? You're still without that guy. Okay, yeah, Vassell's a nice piece. Sohan's a nice piece. Trey Jones is a nice piece, but you're still short the main thing, the big guy. With the Patriots, I like some of their pieces, right? I like Ramondre. I like Duggar. I love Christian Gonzalez. I really like Demario Douglas. But without the guy at the quarterback position... Those guys are nice players, but they aren't going to be playing in relevant football games, I should say, without the guy. So look, the big difference is Popovich was never going to get fired in San Antonio. Bill, we may actually see that. Bill may get fired after the season, but I really believe the only way that Bill can save his career here is with the next great Patriots quarterback finding him. And that, now the situation in San Antonio has sort of motivated Popovich to keep it going, right? Like, it's got to be fun. You're coaching this guy. We've never seen a prospect like this before. And if Bill wants to keep his job, what he needs to do is sell the tank to Kraft and start blaming Mac. Honestly, I'm not kidding. That's his way to keep his job, right? Convince him that Caleb Williams or Drake May, that's what you need to turn this thing around quickly. And look, Popovich got so much praise before Wemby did anything just because he's Popovich and just because of his reputation. In Bill's defense, Pop got way less criticism for the DeMar DeRozan trade, the whole Kawhi trade. He got way less criticism than Bill's getting in terms of across the national landscape. And I get it, it's NBA versus NFL. But my point with that is Bill's gotten it a lot. He's heard it a lot more than Greg Popovich has. Like Popovich never had to hear questions about losing his job when the team was stinking. And I'm not saying they should have fired him. I'm just saying he never had to hear any of that. And I just think that right now, like that was going back in time, that was brutal business. The the DeRozan trade was awful. He doesn't shoot threes. He stinks in the playoffs. So both Pop and Bill failed trying to stay relevant after moving on from stars. And now what is interesting to me, will Bill get the same opportunity that Greg Popovich did? Where Greg Popovich realized, holy shit, this guy's coming to the NBA Let's lose. If I get him, I can change this whole thing around again. So to me, the question is this. I just look at the fact that if Bill can convince Kraft that one of these two guys, Caleb Williams or Drake May, can save the franchise, because the other thing that he can do is he can look at essentially what Mac has done and say, hey, Robert, he's 32nd of 36 qualifiers in EPA per play. He is 32nd in success rate. Only Watson, Mayfield, Mills, and Zach Wilson are worse. That's since the start of 2022. And remember, Kraft is the one 
that was pro-Mac, even though he gave that like whole thing about, hey, Lamar wants to be here. But just think about it from this perspective. What Kraft wanted was Bill O'Brien back, right? Bill O'Brien, Kraft obviously thinks Bill O'Brien's a really good coach, okay? Well, if you take the Bill O'Brien offense and you compare it to the Patricia offense, the O'Brien offense is scoring on 24.3% of drives, 31st. The Patricia offense was 32.8%, 23rd. Points per drive, 1.31 with O'Brien 29th, 1.63 with Patricia 25th. Yards per play, 4.7 with O'Brien 29th, 5.3 with Patricia 18th. So yes, this offense is worse with Bill O'Brien than it was with Patricia. Now, some of that is obviously personnel related and all that, but Kraft, his thought was, if we get a different coordinator, we can solve these problems. So Kraft, what Bill has to convince Kraft of is, hey, we just have to acknowledge that Mac's not the guy. And you thought that Bill O'Brien would fix these problems. And Bill could put it out there. I think Bill O'Brien's a good coach. You think Bill O'Brien's a good coach. So what's the problem? It's the quarterback. That's what I think you have to convince them of is, or if you're Bill, what you have to convince him of is max the problem. And another thing you could present to Kraft is, hey, think about it. How many times this season has Mac been the better quarterback than the quarterback on the other side? Eagles, no. Dolphins, no twice. Jets, yes, but Mac was not good in that game. He threw for 201, completed 51.7% of his passes. Cowboys, no. He was atrocious and then got yanked. Saints, he was terrible. I mean, that may have been his Mona Lisa in terms of his worst games. Two picks, 110 yards. Raiders, no. Jimmy and Hoyer were better. Buffalo, ironically, yes, which is amazing. And so Washington, no. All these games. So you've played nine games. In seven of them, you had the inferior quarterback. So 77.8% of the time, Mac is worse than the guy on the other side. So do you think Kraft would move on from both in one offseason? That's my question. Because here's the interesting component of this going forward. There's no way someone else wants this job if Mac's the quarterback. And I know you can say one of 32 and we've heard all this stuff about Gerard Mayo, the coach in waiting. But there's no way like somebody would want to take this job because of Mac Jones. He makes the job less appealing. So if you sort of had to handicap it going forward, handicap this thing. Kraft, we know that he wanted a quarterback after the Cam Newton year. And like they had this whole perception of this was like a group decision in terms of drafting Mac Jones. So now if you look at it, are you going to do both? Are you going to fire both of them or not fire both of them, but move on from Mac and move on from Bill in the same offseason? So this is how I'm ranking it. Most likely now, Mac on Bill here, because I still think there's part of this where it's like, and I know people are saying that Robert would do it, but you're admitting you were wrong about the Brady decision and you're and you're moving on from Bill now when you could have done that and kept Tom and won another Super Bowl if you thought, you, well, obviously you're not going to win a Super Bowl with that roster, but you get my point. Tom never would have had to have leave if, left if you just moved on from Bill then. Second most likely, I think Bill is gone. Least likely scenario to me, Mac is still here and Bill is gone. I could be wrong about this, but I can't fathom going with Mac. You can at least, there's at least an argument for Bill, right? In terms of you can at least point to Bill's resume. Now, like I said, I think Bill should be gone. I, I don't think that he's the guy to turn this thing around, but at least there is a resume. There's a resume with Bill. There's no resume whatsoever. Absolutely no resume whatsoever with Mac Jones. I think that could be the, the most likely scenario. And I know everybody's pointing to Bill leaving. I think the most likely scenario is Bill is back. The Patriots have a top five pick. 
Robert gives him one more chance with one of these star quarterbacks and Max gone. I think that the least likely scenario is a situation where you see just Mac Jones and no Bill. So it's going to be interesting to sort of see this, but just sort of bringing this thing full circle in terms of the Popovich, Bill Belichick comparison. They both had like all-time great picks, right? Like Kawhi, that was an awesome pick. Just like Bill's all-time great pick is Gronk, right? Kawhi would have been great somewhere else eventually, right? But that was a stretch. The guy couldn't shoot at all coming out of the collegiate level. Gronk would have been great somewhere else, but he had all these back injuries, right? So that was part of the issue. They both had home run picks when it comes to that. But they also developed a lot of homegrown guys. Edelman, would he have been great elsewhere? I don't know. Is that more of Brady developing? I'm sure eventually he would have been good, but not the career that he had here. Parker and Ginobili, as we mentioned, those were great players, but they were enhanced by Duncan, and they would have been great players anywhere, but not to that level. And you just think about how much did Brady really elevate some of the guys that he played with throughout his career. It'd be interesting to see how those guys would have done elsewhere. But it is really crazy to think about like how these guys are somewhat similar in terms of their career path. Had all-time greats, won a bunch of championships. After those guys left, Popovich had a chance right away to do it with Kawhi Leonard. And of course, that relationship went south. And then it took him, he tried to stay a decent team. It didn't work out. And he lucked into the number one pick. Bill, in some sense, was trying to win And he could be lucking into Caleb Williams or Drake May, a new franchise quarterback in the draft. The question now with Bill, is he going to get that chance? Which I think is the most interesting thing to monitor throughout the season. Are they going to stick with Bill going forward? Can Bill convince him that, hey, Max the issue, it's not me? All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.